0: The Powerhouse acknowledges the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which our museums are situated. We pay respects to elders past and present and recognise their continuous connection to country. This episode was recorded on Gadigal, Turabo, Yogara, Kumbhmeri and Wurundjeri country. My name is Tran Lam and you're listening to the Culinary Archive podcast, a series from the Powerhouse Museum. The powerhouse has over half a million objects in its collection, from vintage beer labels from the 1800s to Vegemite tubes from the 2000s to a mambo poster of the Australia beer tree. The collection charts our evolving connection to food. The museum's culinary archive is the first nationwide project to collect the vital histories of people in the food industry, such as chefs, writers and restaurant owners who've helped shape Australia's tastes and appetites. Today, we're talking about brewer's yeast, the stuff that powers beer and Vegemite.
1: You know, this is a product that's been on the earth for many thousands of years.
2: The fact that an unmarried ex-convict who was a woman was allowed to run a pub was really quite remarkable.
3: In the late 19th century, a German chemist discovers you can get this brewer's yeast, but have yeah, you ever eaten yeast? It's not especially palatable.
4: My style of vegemite, definitely not Tom Hanks' style. That was just too much.
0: <laughs> Australian colonial history begins with beer. The Endeavour left England with 250 barrels on board and from 1797 onwards, the drink also reflected the changing fortunes of women. From Sarah Bird becoming Australia's first female licensee to the 1960s feminist fight to allow women in public bars, beer has always bubbled over into politics, with Resch's owner Edmund Resch thrown into a local internment camp when World War One broke. He was punished for his German roots despite living here since age 16. Politicians love to be associated with beer. Prime Minister Bob Hawke set an ale-drinking world record in 1954 and has a craft beer named after him, and so does the current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Beer has given us a national icon, Vegemite, which gets its salty flavour hit from brewer's yeast. And brewers like Wildflower in Sydney are doing fascinating experiments with beer using native greens, wild yeasts, and local flowers. You can toast how far the drink has evolved since its initial arrival into Sydney.
2: My name is Claire Wright. I'm a professor of history at La Trobe University. I'm the author of Beyond the Ladies' Lounge, a history of female publicans in Australia. I research and write about Australian history, democracy, the social history of alcohol. I write Australian women's history, or as I like to say, I write Australian history with the women put back in. Women were essential to the hotel keeping industry and the liquor industry in general right from the very beginning of the colonies. The first woman to be given a licence in Australia was in Sydney in 1797, a woman called Sarah Bird, She was the first
0: of many women who found their economic freedom from running pubs in Australia. If you're wondering how a single 27-year-old convict woman had enough money to afford a liquor licence, well, she wisely brought small amounts of tea, sugar and other goods en route to Australia and then flogged these items for a lot more money when she arrived here. That's how her pub, The Three Jolly Settlers, was established in Sydney.
2: The fact that an unmarried ex-convict who was a woman was allowed to run a pub was really quite remarkable, partly because there'd always been a notional association between women and alcohol and prostitution or loose morals. Australia started as a penal colony. There was a particular need to have a particular type of person who was able to be in charge who would be able to take control of an unruly population. And what was quickly established was that women were going to be able to have that power and authority. So rather than women who traded alcohol being seen as quasi-prostitutes, in fact, they ended up taking on the role as quasi-mothers and grandmothers.
0: So publicans were seen as maternal figures, and authorities realised they were much better at keeping a booze-filled industry in check. These women were tough and could endure a lot. A few years after opening her pub, Sarah Bird actually survived an attack where her throat was slashed and she in fact lived for nearly 40 years after that.
2: When the first licensing laws were actually codified in 1838, a really extraordinary thing happens. Two pronouns are used when they talk about a licensee. They say his or her license, his or her signature. And there's basically no other legislation of this era in which the female pronoun is used. Alcohol in general was a woman's ticket to a better life because in the penal settlement, she was able to actually legally sell alcohol and therefore start a business, and therefore have some economic independence, and therefore have more power in the marriage market.
0: By the end of the 18th century, up to 25% of licences were held by women, a pretty amazing number, as they weren't as welcome in other industries. The thing is, though, women were just as tied up with avoiding alcohol as they were in selling it.
2: By the end of the 19th century, when the temperance movement is at its height, this is also the height of female hotel keeping. In cities like Melbourne, over 50% of hotels are run by women. One of the other very interesting things is that the liquor industry realised that having women as part of its superstructure, right up at the top there, was one of their best chances of fighting the temperance industry. And so they started to promote the fact that Australia had this wonderful, reputable and respectable hotel industry because so many women were in charge of
0: it. The public role of women is surprisingly tied to Australia's drinking culture. You only have to drop by your local pub to see this today. Or you can also flip through the powerhouse collection of designs by Sydney Warden, who worked on nearly 400 Sydney pubs around a century ago. Some of them are still pouring booze today, like the Lansdowne Hotel, the Clare and the Henson Park. Next time you go on a pub crawl, think about how everything from the tiles on the wall to the accommodation upstairs is part of a kind of grubby history about who was allowed in pubs, what they were allowed to do, and
2: when they were allowed to drink. Pubs had undergone an architectural and therefore cultural revolution. So in the 19th century, the pub had a public bar, it had a private bar, it had a saloon, it had dining areas, it had the upstairs living areas for the publican who had to live on premises pubs in order to sell alcohol had to provide accommodation and meals to travelers which is one of the reasons women again were favored in the industry because who looks after sleeping and bedding and and meal providing well that's women's work so that's how the 19th century pub was set up and women as drinkers were part of that environment women wouldn't necessarily drink in the public bar with men But neither would working-class and upper-class men drink together in the public bar.
0: The idea of the public bar as an egalitarian space, that was nonsense, according to Claire Wright. And even if you had the freedom to drink wherever you liked, well, there were other restrictions too.
2: Around the First World War, licensing laws were changed to bring in a restriction of drinking hours. So instead of pubs being open till 11pm, they closed at 6 o'clock. So when people knocked off work at five, they had one hour to drink. And that was supposed to be a temporary wartime measure, but it became permanent. And Australians drank that way for the next 50 years. And we know this, of course, as the six o'clock swill. A really disgusting way of consuming alcohol, where for one hour, people would press up against the bar so they could get as many drinks and not get chucked out by last call. And what the pubs themselves did when they realised that these restricted hours were here to stay is they started actually changing the architecture. They tiled the whole thing out. And we see photos of this era. Public bars look more like hospital surgeries. And this was so they could actually hose them out at the end of a drinking session. Because I've spoken to publicans who are running hotels during this time and they've said people would literally piss up against the bar rather than lose their place in line. That meant that effectively women no longer wanted to drink in the public bar. They started to drink in what became known as the ladies' Lounge. But fast forward to the 1960s, when women are starting to claim a place in all of the levels of society that they are being excluded from, when a second wave of feminism starts to wash through Australian society, the pub becomes one of the central sites of protest. The pub becomes symbolic of women's exclusion from society, women's exclusion from public space and public visibility. And so we have that very famous protest of Merle Thornton and Rosalie Bogner in the 1960s. These women were working at Queensland University. They were wives of academics. They themselves had academic teaching positions, and yet they couldn't go and have a drink with their male colleagues after work. So they chained themselves to the bar, and then there became piggyback protests all over Australia. This was really calling for an end of sex segregation in general, but it has become very specifically known as uh, a site of protest within the pub and the end of the ladies' lounge.
3: Fed up with being excluded from public bars, in March 1965, Merle Thornton and Roe Bogner chained themselves to the railing
0: at the Regatta Hotel. It wasn't a very expensive protest. The dog chain cost only five and six, and the padlocks were only two bob each. Women weren't the only ones who had to fight for their right to be in a pub. Senator Bonner asked for the beer, and uh, he, he said, don't serve them Aboriginals. Who said that? Gourley. He instructed his
1: barman not to serve us. And that, that, in fact, is uh, the publican, is it? That's
0: right. Yeah. You've just heard ABC News footage from 1975 about Indigenous patrons allegedly being refused service at the Grand in Warrnambool, a town located along Victoria's Great Ocean Road. You'd like to think, because that was archival footage, that discrimination is a thing of the past, but sadly there are plenty of not-so-old news reports about Indigenous patrons being refused to enter into pubs This allegedly happened in WA in 2014, in Adelaide in 2016, there were 29 Aboriginal people barred from walking into two Sydney pubs in 2019, and they recently won a court case over this. Pubs should be welcome to everyone, well, everyone of drinking age of course, but they can be a symbol of exclusion, even if politicians love flocking to pubs to appear like they're just one of us. We like to think that beer has a bonding power, but as we've just heard, stories of discrimination and bigotry are also linked to the world of tinnies, schooners and middies. There's a hint of this in the Powerhouse Collection, where you'll find a beer brewing diary and thesis used by Dr. Carl Resch. If that name seems familiar to you, it's because his dad Emil helped found Carlton and United Breweries, while his uncle Edmund established what's now known as Resch's Beer.
5: Hello, my name is Alice Resch-Lacroix. I'm a great granddaughter of Edmund resch
0: Brewer. If you have questions about the Resch family, Alice is the person to ask. She's done a podcast about her great-grandfather called the Edmund Resch series. She's writing a book about him and she also gets to knight people with long-neck beers as part of the Resch's Appreciation Society. Let's hear about how the founder of Resch's got his start.
5: Edmund Resch was a 16-year-old runaway from Germany in the mid-1800s. That 16-year-old boy that arrived in Australia worked many jobs. He worked on farms, he was engaged by somebody to help build a bridge. He was completely broke to the bottom of his pockets. He went off prospecting, which many people did back then. And he was with a mate, the first to strike copper at Cobar. In his moment of mining, he thought it would be a good idea to be selling beverages rather than digging holes.
0: If you look at the Powerhouse collection, you'll find century-old photos of his first-ever brewery in out outback New South Wales. You'll also find photos of Russia's bottles that are just as old.
5: When we look at some of the old bottles, some of them have a date on them and an address for being buried in Australia. But we also know from family records that the Russians didn't just get all their glass bottles in Australia because the orders were too big to be fulfilled. And they used to get them from Scandinavia. I was always brought up being told that it would take nine months for the order to be fulfilled, three months for the order letter to get there by ship, three months for the consignment to be made, and three months for it to be shipped back to Australia. So I, I think about that a lot in this day and age where we hope for everything to happen so immediately. But back then, their planning would have really been something
0: else. Edmund Resch had quite a life. He was Sydney Consul for the Netherlands for 12 years, something even his great-granddaughter can't quite explain. And he kept opening and running breweries even after he retired. The
5: wife and teenage sons were back on a trip to Germany, visiting family. And Edmund Resch was contacted by an old friend of his who had a brewery in trouble in Sydney that had gone into receivership and the bank manager was asking Edmund to give a little bit of advice. I say he was retired, but he was obviously still active in business. Edmund's secretary apparently bet him a, a gold sovereign that he would own the brewery within the year. And sure enough, he did. He took a punt and just after he retired, he sold up everything, all the furniture, packed it up, sold the house, sold everything. But all his money he had made into Alts Brewery in Sydney and sent a telegram to his wife in Germany saying,
2: have brought brewery, stop, put boys in Bristol. So that was really the start of the Reshers that we talk about. And he ran that with his sons until the time that he died.
5: Reshers draft, pick and taste it from here. Big, gutsy, brewed to satisfy like no other beer. Reshers, the beer that makes your day.
0: Like his brother Emil Resch, who ran Carlton United Breweries, Edmund Resch was a successful businessman who created opportunities for locals. But Emil and Edmund were targets of anti German sentiment during World War I. Emil Resch had to leave Carlton United Breweries, and Edmund Resch, at age 71, was sent to a local internment camp in Holsworthy, Western Sydney, a harsh, cramped prison where he was punished for simply having a German surname even though he'd lived in Australia for 55 years and had been here since age 16. This is something that also happened during World War II, where people with Japanese heritage were punished and one in five Italians living in Australia were sent to internment camps. And back in World War I, Edmund Resch was dispatched to Holsworthy's prison camp just because of where he was born. He was naturalised Australian. His children were Australian. But he was a uh, German...
5: Origin, and, uh, that was the enemy in the First World War. I understand that he was the uh, oldest in Tarni, and as the owner of a brewery, the most popular. I think due to ill health, he wasn't able to go beyond house arrest, and then he died shortly after. After that, but I think a very sad and difficult time for somebody who had become really quite clearly a passionate Australian. There's also a really really interesting fact that Edmund completely. Supported the Australian war effort, paying the wages of any members of his staff who were called up to go to war, he kept paying their wages so their families would have more than just their army pension, so that they were well looked after through it. And he was a great supporter of the war effort, but you know he had a German name, and those things were enough to cause bias and issue.
0: A sad part of a chapter that shouldn't have happened in history. Today. Alice Resch-Lacroo helps run two Sydney pubs that belong to her great-grandfather, the Imperial Hotel in Paddington, and the Sir John Young in the city, which she'll transform into Resch House. As part of the Resch's Appreciation Society, she knights members with long-neck beer bottles, while she wears a crown of beer cans. She does this once they complete their Resch's Appreciation Society passport, earning stamps from 100 venues, that poor Russia's beer.
5: There are a lot of pubs. It was a proper quest. People took time off work and went on holiday and grouped together and drove rounds. And it's a great initiative for getting people out and about and also a really great initiative for those pubs that maybe people hadn't got to visit so much in lockdown.
0: Politics and beer, they're hard to separate. Whether you're talking about lockdowns, who is or isn't allowed to score some booze, and the politicians who think they're in touch with the average drinker or pub goer. Politicians are forever aiming to pass the pub test, the media's idea of what the average Australian approves of. And when the June 2021 lockdown ended, where else did the New South Wales Premier, Deputy Premier and Treasurer go for their photo op? Not a wine bar for some Riesling or a pet gnat, but a pub for the tried-and-true foam-topped glass of beer. The most popular prime minister in Australian polling history, Bob Hawke, is famous for sculling a yard of ale, 1.4 litres, in just 11 breathtaking seconds.
3: Hawke, as he was nicknamed, was also fond of a beer. Later in life, he was still happy to raise and down a glass to the delight of the masses.
0: Bob Hawke is also the only Australian politician to have a craft beer company named after him. Politics and beer, like beer and hangovers, are hard to separate. What else is hard to separate? The link between women and the story of beer.
6: Hi, I'm Carly Smilwell. I'm currently the head brewer and production manager at Grifter Brewing located in Marrickville. We've been open for almost 10 years now. There's many different ways to make beer but essentially we're taking a sugar source. Predominantly this can be malted barley uh, in addition to other grains such as wheats and oats or roasted grains. We are going through a series of different events. We're crushing the grain to unlock the starch but then we're adding a to hot water to extract the sugars from the grain. Essentially what we're looking for is the perfect yeast food so that when we add yeast to it we are producing alcohol and carbon dioxide.
3: Hops are ground for several important reasons. We use hops in the making of yeast for baking. They are used in the making of beer and they also contain chemicals which are needed for some kinds of medicine
6: pops are added in the brew house we're adding them when there's heat to get the bitterness and flavors out Um, but we can also add it late in the fermentation process to get more of a floral or fruity aromas yeast in australia we're commonly seeing that it's a monoculture but we are also getting a lot of craft breweries now using either dual cultures or wild ferments, and even introducing bacteria to drive some different flavours. There's a stereotype
0: that beer is something that only dude bros are into. But the growing number of women in the industry proves this isn't true. Two Birds Brewing, Australia's first female-founded brewery, started bottling its first ales in Melbourne over a decade ago. And Spark, based on Garnerland, is a female-run company, which makes boozy drinks like Girls Just Want to Have Funding, a brew that highlights the gender pay gap, lack of representation in Parliament, and other examples of gender inequality. But before we toast these developments, let's remember that a 2019 Brewers Association report concluded that only 7.5% of brewers identify as female. But beer wasn't always a male-dominated activity – In fact, one of the oldest beer recipes in the world is a 3,800-year-old tribute to Ninkasi, the Sumerian goddess of beer and brewing. Like the women who were allowed to run pubs in colonial Australia, one of the few ways Sumerian women were allowed to make a living was via the brewing and selling of beer. And the female pronoun was commonly used to describe tavern owners, like in Australian history. Women were essentially the original brewers, and I wonder if this is something Carly Small was aware of as she made her way through the currently male-dominated industry.
6: There were a lot of females in the laboratory, not so much in production, but I was just blown away with the science behind beer, the use of the raw materials, and also how brewing is not very well understood, so... People think that brewing is a male-dominated thing and it's only consumed by males. But I very much feel that my gender doesn't determine what I can and can't do in a career or my abilities and also what I can and can't drink. I have certainly noticed that we're getting more females in the brewing industry. I think a lot of organisations and companies are realising that the success of their companies is actually dependent upon diversity and diversity of thought in particular.
0: <sighs> On the topic of thinking differently, let's hear about a Sydney brewery that gathers local wild yeast. This process has been compared to collecting dreams. It's very different to the big name industrialised brands you'll find at beer barns and bottle shops.
1: Hi, my name is Topher Bain. I am the brewer and co-owner at Wildflower Brewing and Blending. We employ the yeast on native flowers here in New South Wales to ferment our beers, the exact opposite of a monoculture fermentation. Because beer is a really, really closely related product to bread, to compare it to bread, I suppose we could think about the Heinekens and Carlsbergs of the world as the Wonder Whites produced and consumed in very high quantities. Whereas what we do, you could probably compare a little bit closer to a sourdough baker who has a much slower fermentation It's using yeast resident to their area. We have beers that age in barrel for any number of years before we end up blending them
0: so what inspired Tofa Bame to take such a unique approach to brewing beer?
1: When I started the industry was focused on aggression. It was high levels of alcohol. When I moved to Australia in two thousand and eleven and as I spent more time here, I became more and more. In awe of the unique flora and fauna on this landmass, we were importing ingredients from around the world to mimic styles of beer that were made elsewhere. We why not celebrate where we are making these beers?
0: Topher Baim realised that yeast was what gave his beer its one-of-a-kind flavour. So he travelled across the state exploring his friend's properties and collecting flowers from different parts of New South Wales to create the foundation of his beers.
1: So I brew a batch of wort, unfermented beer, and put it into a sterile vessel. And into that vessel would just stick, quite simply, the flour. And within a couple of days, it's burst into life with bubbles and foam and aromatics. I just did this with more and more flowers, And at the end of the year, I took the handful that I really liked, which I think was six in the end, and I combined them. And then we started to make beer with them.
0: You know what else you can make from beer? Vegemite. Yeah, the stuff made from leftover brewer's yeast. Who knew that such a weird waste product from the beer industry could have such an unexpected and globe-spanning afterlife? It somehow represents us worldwide. Australian troops have been sent to war with Vegemite. There was a time when 9 out of 10 Aussie homes had the condiment in their pantries, Vegemite is one of three Australian exhibits in the Disgusting Food Museum in Sweden, and when actor Tom Hanks was quarantining with COVID in Australia, his eager over-application of Vegemite on toast made international news.
6: If Tom Hanks has learned anything from his time in isolation, it's how to spread Vegemite.
0: Vegemite and Australia are inseparable. So how exactly did this iconic Australian spread come into being? Let's hear from Paul van Rijck, author of True to the Land, A History of Food in Australia. He also appears in our grain and coffee episodes.
3: In the late 19th century, a German chemist called named Justus von Liebig discovers that you can get this brewer's yeast and you can concentrate it, and you can bottle it and you can eat it. But uh, have you ever eaten yeast? It's not especially palatable. There's a company called the Marmite Food Extract Company in Britain, Staffordshire, which adds things to this yeast product, other vegetable essences, a heck of a lot of salt. Marmite recipe is quite a secret. And it takes off. During World War I, however, because the war's on and ships are being torpedoed and so on, and so trade is risky, Marmite's hard to get. What happens is that, A chemist called Cyril Callister, he's employed by the Fred Walker Company, and he basically recreates this spread from brewer's yeast. When he first puts it out, he calls it pure vegetable extract, which isn't going to sell. Like even back then, people knew that ain't a selling point. A competition that's run to name this, and a pair of Melbourne sisters, Hilda and Lauren Armstrong, win the competition with the name. Vegemite. But it doesn't take off initially. The company tries to change its name. Let's call it Will, And the advertising slogan is Marmite, but Will." It's a painful slogan, but nonetheless, that takes 14 years before it's rebranded as Vegemite and becomes popular in Australia, starts to replace Marmite. Apart from the fact that it's got a massive amount of salt in it. It's spreadable, you know, Vegemite sandwiches where hard-boiled egg on becomes a school favorite. You can use it in stock, add it to a soup. It's a really all-encompassing ingredient. The, one of the other interesting things about Vegemite was the first product to be scanned at a supermarket. The one billionth jar of Vegemite was bottled, which is, Some kind of landmark, I guess. The other interesting thing, though, about Vegemite, given that it had gained a lot of popularity since like the 1930s, but the Happy Little Vegemite song, you know, we're Happy Little Vegemites, wasn't out until 1956, but now is as much a well known classic Australian food jingle as the Airplane Jelly song.
0: If you look at the Powerhouse collection, you'll see how Vegemite has changed over the decades. There are the original 1923 amber glass jars by Fred Walker, 1930s white opal designs, red and white speckled containers from the 1940s made to be reused as drinking vessels during a time of wartime scarcity. There's also the polarising range of Vegemite snack 2.0 products from 2009 too. So why are Australians so attached to Vegemite? So Vegemite,
3: I think, is one of those iconic foods that has a slight love-hate relationship for Australians. We defence it staunchly, I think partly out of sheer cussedness because really, you know, it, it is really strong flavored. There is some stubbornness about us saying, yeah, but it's ours and we are the ones who know how to use it.
0: Chefs from around the world have been inspired to reinvent Vegemite when Rene Redzepi from Copenhagen's Noma, the restaurant famously ranked the world's best on five occasions, set up his pop-up in Sydney, he created his take on Vegemite for Noma's abalone schnitzel dish. At Maiz in Sydney's Newtown, Juan Carlos Negrete offers a Mexican mole-style Vegemite powered by chilies and sesame seeds. Bao Trong had deep-fried Vegemite cheese bun mee on its menu when the Vietnamese eatery opened its Starling Square outpost. In Melbourne, Kanyuin's Vegemite curry with roti quickly became a cult dish at his Sunda restaurant.
3: Why Vegemite lends itself to different interpretations like a veggie curry or indeed, you know, Vegemite sauce on spaghetti or whatever you want to do is because it's that basic ingredient that has a flavour hit that enhances a really kind of tasteless
0: dish. Vegemite officially turns 100 next year. And its classic red and yellow design has been a familiar sight on supermarket shelves and breakfast tables for decades. Let's hear from one artist who was given the freedom to change its iconic look in
4: 2018. Hi, I'm Claudia Mudinati-Jones, and I am a Brisbane-based Indigenous artist. Growing up in remote community, there was either Vegemite or jam, so it was always Vegemite for me. I love my Vegemite. Where I am originally from and where I was born is the Gulf of Carpentaria, Bentic Island. So it's one of 22 islands up north. My mother's side family is from Bentic and my father's side family is from the main island where most of my family got removed to. It's surrounded by water, so. Where I got my Vegemite, or oh, where well, my grandparents got their <laughs> Vegemite from, was from a little resort called Suez Island, directly across from Bentec growing up. So they used to jump in their boat, go across, whenever I and my brother needed Vegemite with our toast. It was island hop, go over, get Vegemite, come back. I would ask my grandparents to maybe get five or six jars when that Vegemite jar came out with my design on. My mum and family members ran in and got 10 jars. Kind of reminded me of when I was on Ireland. So designing the Vegemite jar, my mind went back up north every time I'd put pen to paper. Most of the memories was from the girls of Carpentaria, from Bentick and Mornington. A lot of the colours of Vegemite that I put on paper was the beautiful cliff sides on the island when you're coming in. The sand, the yellow, um, and then I deliberately put our pet pig in there that we had for a couple of years. We had a lot of red and the green of the regrowth of the island once the drought, you know, cleared up and coming into winter and all of that. So it's mostly like the rocks, the clay, um, trees, and being surrounded by the ocean. So a bit of blue in there as well. So the little Patterns that are actually on the paper uh, represents me, my family, and growing up on the island, going to ceremonies and going to visit other families on other islands just to see them again. So it's the traveling from one island to another. The first time I saw my design on Vegemite, I threw the Vegemite in the fridge and in the cupboard out into the bin and I went, that's it. Everything in this house, it has to be Claudia Vegemite now. So my grandmas were telling me what I painted on that Vegemite jar and where what country I painted. So it was kind of them telling me, I know where you painted and you loved Vegemites. <laughs> so it was a bit of a excitement from the family up north. I reckon I ended up with at least 50, 60 Vegemite jars. And I walk into my auntie's house up at the Sunshine Coast and there's about 20 in a glass cabinet. And I'm going, how did you get that? And she goes, every time I try and open the cupboard to grab one out, she, go, she comes along and slaps my hand, don't touch it, that's mine. So I, between the whole family, I reckon there's at least you know, 78 here sitting around.
3: Vegemite is a great food and so tasty. Not only for the kiddies, but for all your family.
4: Everyone loves, you know, that really tangy taste of it on toast. Most of the people I know who eat Vegemite are Australian, and when I sent it to the New Zealanders, they went, yeah, just a little bit at a time.
3: So always ask for Vegemite, made by Craft.
0: So if we rewind about 4,000 years or so, you'll find that women were the original brewers and selling alcohol-empowered Sumerian women as they did in Australia quite a few millennia later, as historian Claire Wright explained. Thanks to feminists protesting at pubs in the 60s, women were allowed beyond the ladies' lounge. And as Carly Small, head brewer at Grifter shows, women are increasingly reclaiming their space in the beer-making world. Topher Baim at Wildflower shows how you can take flowers that are unique to New South Wales and turn them into wild ales. Alice resch revealed how beer changed her great-grandfather's life and today inspires people to visit 100 Resch's Pouring Pubs so they can be knighted with long-necked beer bottles as part of a Resch's Appreciation Society ritual. As Paul van Rijck and Claudia Mudanuthi discussed, Vegemite is a hangover-free way to enjoy beer and to declare your status as an Australian. Chefs have used the iconic ingredient in everything from curry to bun me. But the key is not to go overboard with Vegemite. That's something we've all learned from Tom Hanks.
4: Mine is very thin. One toast will be thicker than the other not very thick like Tom Hanks. It's very light and just you have to taste the Vegemite.
0: This episode was inspired by items from the Powhouse collection, such as a beer brewing diary and thesis used by Dr. Carl Resch, photos of Sydney Warden's pub designs, Resch's beer bottles, and photos of Resch's Vulcania Brewery, and original Vegemite jars that date from 1923 to 2009. Find a link to these objects in the show notes. This podcast was written and researched by me, Lee Tran Lam. Our executive producer is Cara Stewart, and the show is produced by Aisha Ash, and edited and sound designed by Mara Vega Our theme music is River at Work by Asa Tone, and the commissioning editors are Lisa Havila and Callum Cooper. A special thanks to Annie Turnbull. To keep up to date with the latest episodes and new content from the Powerhouse Museum, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.